0: Turn up the heat, because we're myth-busting oven technology with ICE, industrial coating equipment. Owner Richard Ludvick, a 30-year veteran expert, is my special guest and here to cover all the questions you have about ovens, building them, buying them, heating them, and more. We also discuss why there's such a low inventory of used ovens and related equipment on the market today. And we touch on the problems facing variable substrate powder coating like wood and MDF, a new industry some of you may not have heard of. It's taken about a year to get him scheduled. Let's light it up. Get ready to level up your powder coater game. Welcome to Ross Coates Powder Coater Podcast. I'm your host, Kim Scott, where we interview influencers and talk about trending topics so you can grow your powder coating biz. Uh, Today's guest uh, is a very, very busy man, and I'm so grateful that he was able to join us today. Uh, Please welcome to the show Richard Ludvick of Industrial Coating Equipment, He is the owner, executor, planner, everything you need to get your ovens up and running. Um, He sells new and used equipment, and you can find him at indcoding.com. Welcome to the show, Richard.
1: Nice to be here.
0: Yeah, thank you. And you are a busy man, because you just said earlier, before we started the show, that you pretty much do everything. So what is it that you do, and what do you sell?
1: Well, um, basically, um, we do everything from start to finish, Um, whether it's a small batch system, uh, complete integrated system, uh, robotics, pick and place units. Uh, We do all the design here. We do uh, all the controls here. Uh, We do have a number of sources that do some of the fabrication. Years past, we used to do all the fabrication also, Um, but uh, experiencing all the issues with employees and different things like that. Uh, we've outsourced a lot of that just to make it simpler, and it actually allows us to uh, handle more um, mm-hmm. because now I have all these different sources rather than just relying on who I had in house. So we can focus right. on the critical things, such as controls and different things right, like that, right. and then we let the other let the fabricators weld the frames and do all those other things. So we can focus on on what really makes the system work.
0: So in your you're in you're out of Florida, right? You're based yes, out we of- were originally
1: in Ohio, and then uh-huh. we moved, um, well, it's about five years ago now that we moved the company to Florida uh, for a number of reasons, but, uh, but yeah.
0: And so, you know, you you build in your shop, so your welders will build, the, or do you build on site um, when you go to, how does that work?
1: Well, we, we um I have a design, well, I do all the design work, and then I have, uh, other fabrication houses actually build the equipment
2: mm-hmm. and then we
1: ship it in sections.
2: Okay. And then I
1: contract installers to actually install it. A uh, part of that process is, you know, cause we're working with the customer hand in hand throughout the process. Uh, but for example, I have a, a washer being installed in two weeks. So I will be out there on Monday to introduce my contractors to the, the uh, customer, get them all set make sure it's going in the right place. Everybody understands what's taking place. <laughs> they will go ahead and install it uh, Mm -hmm. over. It's gonna take them about a week for this particular washer. And then I will be back there to start it up and uh, troubleshoot and make sure that the customer's happy and and everybody's good to go.
0: And so I I love this. I'm gonna share your site uh, website here. I have it, um, let me get it up here first. And I have this, I do like this one section that you have uh, on it because it really kind of simplifies Uh, designing and installing a typical powder coating or finishing system takes 16 weeks, 10 hours a day, seven days a week. And I just, I kind of like that because it really, uh, anybody landing on your site is really going to kind of, you know, understand (laughs) the kind of time and effort it takes and that it's not, sometimes not just building a box with a heater in it right as as simple as people want to make that right so yeah
1: and of course with the covid and and getting materials you know that's thrown a wrench into everything of course which everybody's experiencing right but that's what gives us flexibility too by by outsourcing a lot of that fabrication different things like that i can mitigate that like most of our deliveries now uh, the actual fabrication time, we're still able to keep it, you know, uh, anywhere from 10 to 14 weeks for the actual design and fabrication, you know, and then we get into shipping, you know, but, but that's a separate story.
0: And so who are your customers right now, or do they just vary? Are they paint companies trying to convert into coating, you know, powder coating? Are they existing Um, powder coaters?
1: It's, it's, you know, the whole gambit. Um, now we're, we're a smaller company. Um, we don't do the monster systems. Right. I don't deal with the GMs and the Fords and all those other people. Typically my ideal customer is a owner operator business. Um, I'm usually talking to either the plant engineer or the owner or somebody there. in. uh, typically they're smaller companies. Uh, mostly the equipment we build, um, kind of tops out around a million dollars, maybe a little bit more for the entire package. So in general, they're smaller systems. Right. Um, but that being said, a lot of them are, uh, for example, fabricators that are outsourcing and they decide mm-hmm. that they need to bring it in. Or um, maybe they have a specific product that's been dictated to them and a specific coating for that. So they'll come to us and say, hey, how do I do this? Yeah. Um, so that's kind of what it falls And Then we have the powder coaters. You know, we have a lot of people that uh, maybe they have a a small batch system and they Mm -hmm. recognize that it's just not cutting it anymore. We need to up our game. Right. Uh, For example, I have a a system that uh, is going in right now, a a nice batch powder coater in Indiana, and he has uh, multiple ovens and booths and everything else. But Mm -hmm. he's got so many small parts, he he realized the need to automate. So we're putting an overhead line with a three stage washer small system, it fits in under 2000 square foot of space. And when it's all said and done, he'll have it in for under $400,000. So, um, and, and he's got enough product to fill the line right now. In fact, once this goes in, he's looking at a second system. He'd already bought another building because he's seeing the uptick, Yeah. Uh, but that's typically, you know, again, it's owner operator, smaller company, um, and that's what I like to work with. I, I don't like all the politics and all those other things that you get into with a lot of the bigger companies. So when somebody calls or talking to me, I'm, you know, the, the maintenance guys all over the country have my name, my contact information, because, you know, if they get a, into trouble, hey, give me a call. We can walk you through it. You know, so
0: And it sounds like you've been in the business for a while. How long have, has it been?
1: Well, it's um, longer than I care to admit, because it means I'm getting <laughs> older. Um, actually i started right out of high school as a draftsman for a company wow and uh, we were a gold distributor for graco at the time when that was a big deal and uh we put in a lot of paint kitchens circulating systems and booths and things like that and then it kind of grew because you have a booth now somebody wants a conveyor now they have a booth and a conveyor they want an yeah. oven so just learned over the years even with the programming and electronics you know just uh uh, through osmosis or however you want to put it, but, uh, just gain that knowledge. So it's, it's been 40 plus years now, uh, involved in the business, With probably, I think on my website, I had 150 plus installations this is probably way more than that when
3: you really sit down and think about yeah. it.
0: So what are the main components of, you know, that you need to have for a basic oven setup, just an oven, not conveyor, any kind of wash system, um, you want to talk yeah. about that? I mean, it, it, in a sense, you're just building a box with heaters in it. Um, but it can vary when you're going from gas versus electric versus IR versus UV, you do them all, right? Correct.
1: Correct. <laughs> and typically the ideal situation, if, if I have the flexibility to z- design from new, um, and and based on the customer's product, I I generally recommend a combination of infrared and convection. Now, this is in more of a process type application as opposed to batch. Um, uh, batch does not lend itself well to IR.
3: Yeah.
0: Um, yeah, we tried that. <laughs> we kind of experimented when we first moved into our new shop, which was back in twenty twenty, and uh, we we just kind of were. Um, it's our small oven that we were messing around with and mm-hmm. Ross wanted to kind of see how much more productivity and, you know, quicker heating we could get out of this small, you know, cause we've had this small oven for a long time. So like we could kind of mess around with it and not, and know, you know, know our limits, yeah. um, and stuff. And so when you said that, I, I, I kind of, I, I can, I understand what you're saying with that. You know, we did see an uptick in productivity and turnaround times and heating, heating uh, times and stuff like that. But, yeah, um, yeah, there
1: there are inherent issues, and and uh, that's why we we kind of do them all, uh, because depending on the product, you know, if I was just running flat panels all day long, infrared would be perfect. You know, but yeah. as soon as I put a bend in it or I start doing some other things to it. And I lose that line of sight benefit that you have with infrared. um, Now that limits the efficiency of it. Um, Most of the manufacturers who only do infrared, for example, they've, they've over the years, and I've seen it much more so over the last five years, they've actually gone to, you could almost call it a hybrid because it used to be, they built all the infrared ovens and there was no air circulation other than a little bit of exhaust. Now, all of a sudden, they've got ductwork in there and they are moving a lot of air, trying to help conduct that heat across the part and to minimize banding and some of the other issues you get, depending on the density of your elements.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And that that's pretty much what my husband was saying that he's read about um, in regards to that is this, you know, we used to have, you know, we have electric just to kind of put that on the table. Uh, we tried experimenting with this hybrid model when we first moved here just to kind of see what it would be like. Um, it didn't quite work out. You know, we were still burning through a lot of propane. Um, <clears throat> so the offset for the cost of the propane, which is very expensive here in Hawaii, a lot of my followers know that already. Just we have a huge uh, purchasing problem here, you know. Um, cost overhead for that and that's why we ended up with electric in the end um but you know it, it just didn't work for us but how is when we first built the large oven way back 10 years ago we had this circulation system in there um but what my husband found that was when you circulated it maybe the fan was going too fast or too circulating too much Uh, it would cause a lot of um, debris to kind of kick up and get into say we were doing a flat panel or a gate or something like that it would kick up a lot of dust and and stuff like that in the oven and it would end up in the finish as it was curing so we, we decided to not do that with this new rebuild that we did here what do you say to that does that happen often what are the what are some not, things not normal and against that?
3: It, not you know, normally. Typically, <laughs> um,
1: you know, I'm sure in your batch of, you, you walk in there and, you know, any, any powder that's dislodged or whatever it is, it ends up baking on the floor, you know, usually, um, you know, cause we'll get the question all the time. Well, how, how often should I clean out my oven? Mm-hmm. And, and a lot of times I say, don't, Cause they'll go in there and they dislodge all this dust and dirt and everything okay. else that's been packed into corners and different things like that, right. you know, and, and it takes them weeks to flush all that out of the system. Right. You know, now if, if, if you're really looking at a clean, clean atmosphere, you know, you can always put in high temperature filters on, on the intake side of that fan. Right. Uh, to mitigate some of the, the dust and different things you you uh, create with that. Um, And that really brings a good point too. like a lot of people will run into issues where um, they use a high velocity air seal because they're worried about heat getting out of the oven and into the building. Mm -hmm. Well, when they're hitting that freshly sprayed powder with that high velocity of air, you are discharging a a good amount of that. And eventually you have a coating throughout your oven uh, of this powder. Uh, And then you go in there, you try and clean it. Now you're dislodging it and that creates some issues. But in general, for most applications, it's not really a problem. Now, you know, qualifying that by most of my customers aren't looking for a class A finish or something like that.
0: Right. I think that like custom coders, you know, um, whether they be garage coders just starting out or small commercial uh, space, you know, I don't know, small to medium size guys. uh or even a micro, you know, I, I would consider us kind of more micro or <laughs> small business. Um, you know, we always, you always kind of have to, you almost have to know your part or what you're wanting to do with that oven, but it's hard when you're a custom coder cause you could do anything from a, a set of rims or wheels to a huge uh, gate or railing in, you know, how do you build your oven uh, around such diversity, right? Um, Do you ever have that with your, I mean, it sounds like a lot of the guys that work that uh, want your ovens um, have a specific part in mind that they're trying to, you know, uh, run through or uh, batch. Uh, How do you build an oven for such variety? Well,
1: the key is you have to have good air movement you have to have adjustability uh, of your nozzles so you don't have any hot and cold spots, things like that. Mm -hmm. Um, And we've played with different turnover rates over the years, especially on the, uh, you know, a a gas type oven. And we've kind of settled in around three to four air changes a minute based on the volume Mm. seems to be about right. Um, Any more than that. And now you're creating a lot of turbulence in there. Right. Um, any less, and you're not moving enough air to have a good consistent temperature throughout the oven.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And that seems to be about right. Now we can argue theory all day long. <laughs> um, you know, and we build ovens both ways. A lot has to do with depending on the product, um, and how we're hanging it. Um, but there's, you know, some people say, oh, they want all the supply ductwork in the roof and they want the returns down low. Others say I want it low because hot air rises. So I'm going to get better distribution. I blow it low and I return high. Right. Um, either one works, you know, okay. the, the only the thing that we works, try right? and avoid yeah. the most is, um, you know, cause I've seen a lot of ovens where they'll have both the supply and the return in the ceiling. So what happens is now you just short circuit. So what happens is the lower section of your oven tends to be cooler by a number of degrees because you're dumping it in and unless you have a really high velocity fan you can't blow it all the way to the floor and then ask it to come back up to return so uh typically we'll go floor to ceiling or ceiling to floor or we'll go side to side you know depending on uh sometimes um uh, depending on the part um if it's a little bit heavier part we can kind of cheat and get some good advantage where we have the supply side on the entrance side of a process, and then we have the return on the opposite side. So I'm driving mm-hmm. the heat directly into the part a little bit quicker, and then I'm allowing it to gel and, and mellow out on on the return side.
2: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
1: So there's some little games you can play with that, but um, typically, if I have the ideal situation, I like to have the duct on the floor and the return in the ceiling.
0: In regards to like the build of the walls um what gauge thickness do you like to work with um assuming you're using sheet metal or something you know can you kind of talk about how you build out your walls and what do you put in terms of insulation and stuff like that
1: yeah the standard the standard oven wall uh insulated panel is typically a 20 gauge either luminized or galvanized Luminized is a little bit better material. A lot of ovens are built out of galvanized, and that's fine. Uh, the only issue with galvanized, especially if you use it in a heater house, is that when you hit about 800 degrees on galvanized, it crystallizes, and you can hit it with a hammer, and it will shatter as if it was a piece of glass. Oh wow! I've physically seen that happen. Um, but uh, typically, aluminized 20 gauge in and outer skin or two and a half millimeters, depending on you know what steel you're using, is, is more than sufficient. The big issue is insulation. Um, uh, we use a rock wool mineral insulation. Um, on all our powder coat ovens, all our walls are six inch thick. Okay. On uh, dry off, uh, for economics, we'll use four inch. But the rule of thumb typically, like with a rock wool, is one inch for every hundred degrees.
2: Okay. So if you kind of use
1: it as a rule of thumb, that gets you in, in, in the realm. And that's why we use a six inch because we know that, you know, even though we design it for 425, somebody's going to run it at 450 or, and and in your heater house, you're hotter than that. Because typically you should see a, like in a gas fired, you'll see a difference of anywhere from 50 to hundred degrees. Uh, now, like our construction, all our heater houses are stainless steel on the inside. And then the okay. exterior okay. is... You know, a painted, uh, uh, we'll use mild steel, uh, especially with the manufacturer I use now for actually building the shells for me. Uh, uh, we have all our exteriors painted. So it has a really nice appearance to it. Uh, some of it they powder coat or liquid coat, but all our ovens come in there bright white. And then we do all the trim, the flashing and everything in whatever color the customer asks for. Our standard is like a safety orange, but we have them in blue and green and whatever you choose, you know, depending on your company's color. So, um, we kind of treat our systems, especially because again, it's the owners that are buying it, but we right. look at it as a showcase. Okay. Uh, we have a, a customer here in Florida that we just put a system in. It's all white with all red trim, but they're a high, high end uh, electrical enclosure builder for custom uh, uh, distribution, uh, electrical distribution panels, things like that. And they have people through there all the time. And they actually painted the floor in the building white.
3: Oh my. so yeah so, they're, they're yeah, proving
1: they're a point
0: this. they're making a point right yeah. yeah
1: but but they you know and then they had you know the all the all our all our washers are stainless steel i don't do anything in mild steel
0: can yeah. we walk back just a second on sure. the ga- using galvanized sheet um mm-hmm. for your ovens um one of the questions my husband wanted to ask was that he read on the internet that you know, uh, if you if galvanized gets to like four hundred degrees, it will off gas some kind of like hydrochloric gas. Can you myth bust that, or it, what have have you heard anything about that?
1: I i have. I think I read it somewhere sometime. Um, again, I know you have a, a change in the material above eight hundred degrees. Um. And I've seen some places that recommend you don't take it over 600 um, because of the molecular change in it. But to unequivocally state that, yes, it does, or I, I really couldn't tell yeah. you. Um, Hard to say. I, okay. I think, um, you know, a lot of these things get started because it's a sales pitch for somebody. Well, they're mm-hmm. using galvanized, but we use aluminized. And aluminized is slightly more expensive. Um, and, it, and it actually does have a nicer appearance than the galvanized, but right. there's a lot of ovens built out of galvanized and I haven't heard of any issues okay. other than, like I said, when you get in higher temperature, but, uh, right. I, I would, I would guess that would be more of a, a sales pitch as opposed to any hard science to it. Yeah. Uh, but again, I'm right. not an expert on metals.
0: So. Right. Yeah. Um, so on byproducts from of propane, um, one of the reasons why we didn't get into, aside from the cost of propane here in Hawaii, um, one of the concerns we had was <clears throat> carbon monoxide and capturing the water or making sure that the water is, you know, you have a water trap on your propane. Are there any downsides? I mean, I mean, it, you know, how much of a downside or a, a a con is that when you're, you know, trying to decide between propane, gas, or you know, or uh, infrared or
3: well, um,
1: electric. I, I've never really heard of any real issues. Um, you know, again, even if you had a little bit of moisture in the propane with the temperatures you're running, you're, you're going to boil all okay. that off. Um, now, there there may be. And I've only seen this in 40 years, I, I would say maybe three different times where, because uh, sometimes in a process system, they'll use a combination dry cure, dry off and cure of it. And they'll run the wash parts in, and in the same atmosphere as mm-hmm. the, the color. Mm-hmm. And like I said, three times I've seen it where there was a slight blushing of the finished color. Uh, because of the additional moisture uh, in the oven, because of the wet parts coming in. Now, I preface that by saying it was actually an open oven, as opposed to having a dividing wall or different things like right. that. Because to keep costs down on our smaller systems, we actually do a combination dry off and cure, but it's a completely separate chamber. And we just circulate the hot air in, and then we do have it return through the duct, but it, it never is actually in the atmosphere of the cure oven, just for that reason.
0: Right. Okay. Um, Um, Yeah. Okay. You know, when you compare electric
1: or I mean, um, uh, natural gas to propane, Mm -hmm. um, propane, the heat coefficient of propane is about two and a half times what natural gas is. In other words, for every one cubic foot of of natural gas is typically about a thousand BTU, depending how they mix it at the at the supplier propane on average runs about 2500 BTU per cubic foot. Okay. So there is when you start looking at the numbers there is an offset, you know, because you're getting a higher heat coefficient, you know, so it does make it gets a little bit closer to natural gas even though it's more expensive, but natural gas is still the best way to go.
0: On the BTU and and trying to figure out the capacity, the burner capacity that you need, um, with um, BTUs for a specific size cubic space. How do you go, what are some of the things that you, I'm assuming you have a formula, right? When someone well, it, comes it, to you.
1: It, it's one that I've, and what I do is I use multiple, now I use multiple calculators online just cause it's easier than.
2: Right,
1: kind of okay. Calculator. But but there's, there's a number of different factors. Like it's not just the size of the box. In other words, to go and calculate your required BTU, first of all, you have absorbed energy, and that's in the product itself.
2: Mm-hmm. So
1: on average, are you running 1,000 pounds an hour? Are you running 5,000 pounds an hour? That's the first uh, component of that calculation. Okay. Then secondly, uh, you have surface losses because every side of that box has an inherent loss in it. Right. And which again is why we go with a six inch insulated panel as opposed Mm -hmm. to four. For example, at a, say you have an operating temperature of 400 degrees,
3: a four inch panel will radiate 15 watts on average per square foot. A six inch panel is less than 10. It's actually around, uh, I think it's around eight watts.
1: So just in the thickness of the panel, you have half the heat loss, you know, especially when you get into larger ovens, that becomes a, a large number for sure. Um, you know, and then I mentioned the the ventilation. Well, then the third component that goes into that is your ventilation loss. And that's usually your highest consumer is, is what you have to exhaust. Now, um, you know, if,
3: if you're running solvents, you know, code dictates how much air you have to exhaust as a minimum um
1: which typically on average it's 10,000 cfm for every gallon of solvent that enters
3: that on average um, yeah for powder um you, you know you just have what, what's required
1: for a turnover rate and 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 really like what we do in all our ovens is i put all of the exhausters on vfds variable frequency drives so i can change the volume and typically what we'll set it, we'll do is we'll set that exhaust up to maintain a slight negative in the oven, just, just so I'm, uh, I'm
3: holding the hot air in, but
2: mm-hmm. I don't want
3: it so much that I'm pulling a lot of cold air in. Um, so we'll put it out so we can
1: control that, that volume of air. and And of course with powder, we don't really have any nasties or VOCs that we really have to worry about right um, so that kind of helps us with that so uh, the exhaust is balanced out you know typically when we go in we'll we'll start up the oven and I'll get it running and we'll get good heat and cycling and then I usually recommend wherever they're at that they bring in a, a boiler person or a HVAC house and they'll put all the meters on it and they'll get it all balanced out and adjust so that if you get maximum efficiency of the burner And making sure they're not getting any buildup of of carbon monoxide or anything like that. Mm
2: -hmm. So that's Mm -hmm. why we
1: put the exhaust on on a, a VFD. That gives us that flexibility. Now, in some bigger ovens, because by code, you have to turn over the air in the oven so many times before technically you're allowed to put gas to it. So there is a purge cycle that by code you have to go through. And typically, they like to see about 10 minutes. Now, if you have a, a large oven, that means you have you you need a pretty large exhaust fan. So, uh, what we'll do to reduce the amount of um, purge time, we can put a bigger fan in, and then once we get through the purge, then we can slow it down with the VFD, so we're not pulling all that extra out. So that's another reason it gives us flexibility. Or sometimes they'll use a two-speed motor. Well, they're running on high you know, for the purge cycle, and then they kick it down to a lower speed during the actual process. So there's some games you can play there too, just to reduce startup right. time or loss of energy, you know, just because you're dumping so much hot air out of the building.
0: Let's switch gears a little bit because I I mean, this is kind of triggering me to think about maybe the future of ovens, right? And where we're going, um, especially with a lot of talk about climate change and changing the economy to, um, more circular, more, um, I mean, I, I see a huge upside for powder coders in general, just because of the low VOC or VOC free powders that we offer in, in terms of coatings. Um, but then the other side of that is how much are we gonna, you know, how much is, the powers that get, you know, like the change of wanting us to use more electric versus less gas and propane. Um, where do you see the marketplace going in terms of powder coating ovens? Or do you? Yeah, it, I mean. It's
1: it's it's really hard um, because there's so much static, as I like to call it. Yeah. Um, and it's just who's behind pushing what at the time. Uh, uh, you know, everybody's saying electric, 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 uh, but it is a very inefficient form of heat. Um,
0: Yeah. And then you talk about
1: rolling blackouts and different things like that. And, you know, there's only so much that the power grid can support. And then you have everybody with electric cars. And, you know, um, in 40 years, I did have one customer who switched all his ovens from gas to electric, but it was a big company. And the reason was because the electric company gave him such a subsidy because they actually put a whole uh, uh, substation on their property.
0: Okay. Just for him. Yeah. Right. Yeah. That so, makes sense. I get that. Um, I, I see that maybe happening in the future. Yeah. You know, I just, um, and I hope to have her on the show, um, uh, We had another. um, I I attended a a webinar where uh, the presenter actually um, did a test within her own company. Uh, They do produce ovens, and um, where she was kind of addressing some of the protocols that come with the climate change directives and um, how they stood up versus, you know, electric versus infrared. Um, And it was a fascinating.
1: Oh, oh, you're speaking of a convection type as opposed to infrared then?
0: <clears throat> well, yeah, In, she was, yeah, she was comparing
1: to electric infrared.
0: It, and not only that, but she was taking the directives that are coming out of the EU and some of the stuff they want to pass legislatively here and saying, how practical is this, right? You know, how how is it going to affect our industry? Which I thought was really forward thinking to kind of just take that and just try to apply it you know, so it was an interesting topic um, and certainly needs more exploring because her experiments were sort of just baseline, right? Just general baseline. There wasn't, you know, she tried to be as technical as she could with what was given on the, you know, on what they mean by uh, by these new laws and stuff that they're wanting these manufacturers to try to be zero point or um, less- De, you know, having less demand or, you know, how are they going to work this in with their businesses, you know, because so much of our business is reliant on that. Um and so I uh, you know, I was surprised, you know, I mean for us being electric, I knew that our output or our demand was actually going to be kind of higher to begin with. It was a it was like a significant, um, huge gap or Range for infrared, you know, in its le- less capacity in terms of electric versus electric. But um, you know, I, I I do see i i I sometimes wonder how are they got how they navigate this because they're demanding this one thing, you know, these directives. And then at the same time, there's only so much you can do with electric, right? Um, And like you said, uh, the demand on the grid. Um, Do you want to, I mean, I don't know if you want to add any other comment to that, but uh, there's a lot to explore, I guess. Um, Yeah,
3: I mean, you know, know, I I think, yeah, I always love the phrase, the problem's not the problem. (laughs) Because, it rings true almost from top to bottom, you know, uh, if you look at it from, for example, just, just take that, that scenario with electric,
1: you know, the technology should be more focused on lower baked temperature powders and different things like that, as opposed to limiting how you heat it. Now, you know, because it takes a lot less energy to heat an oven to 250 degrees compared to 450 degrees. Right. And at the same time, you know, uh, again, most of our systems we build with a cooling tunnel. So now, uh, you know, I'm spending all this energy to heat it up and then I'm spending more energy to cool it down. Where the real solution is, boy, if I could just drop the temperature, <laughs> you know, I'm saving right. on both ends. And so then that's I'm the available. powder
0: supplier. Side, right? I mean, it, if I was a powder
1: manufacturer, that's where I'd be going. Right. Yeah. You know, because you you have cost savings all the way around. And right. you can even charge a little bit of a premium for the lower bait because you can justify that because you're saving it in the long run in utility costs and OSHA standards and, you know, right. hot parts right. around operators. And it just goes on and on and on. So that's where I look at the problems, not the problem. They're just trying to put a band aid on it and make everybody feel good. But they didn't really create a solution. Yeah. And, and, you know, because there's nothing wrong with infrared. There's nothing wrong with electric heat. You know, Um, it's, you know, it's mind-boggling because you have people making decisions that have never owned or run a business or (laughs) been in manufacturing, and they're trying to dictate how to do it.
0: Yeah, and I've said this on the show before uh, last year, or actually it was earlier this year, went to powder coating week and in Orlando. And um, one of the keynotes was, um, I can't think of his name right now, but he was from Arkema. And he was presenting, his keynote was around the dirty side of uh, our businesses, right? And it, it I found it ironic because the um, because you know they're a chemical supplier for powder uh, powder suppliers right for and the results uh, were from Axel Nobel and how they identified uh, that it was the manufacturers that had to clean up their side of the business not necessarily it was like they were just pointing the finger at. At us, right? (laughs) To clean up our side of the business. That's easier said than done when you just kind of pointed out how simple it would be if they could just work on the formulation enough to where we could use low temp. And so I, I found it kind of funny that the first thing they go to is just to point the finger somewhere else rather than look you know, of course, according to their research, right. You know uh, and stuff that, that the dirty side of the business or the, 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 the ones that need to clean up their act are actually people like us, not the powder suppliers. And I just found that just too simple of, you know, too simple to point the finger somewhere else, you know, rather than take up the, the, take up the staff and, you know, say, let's all work together as a group. Right. Uh, I don't know.
1: Yeah, well, I, that's why I don't go to too many of those seminars anymore, because I always <laughs> get myself in trouble. Um, my favorite was always when they talk about, you know, oh, we're 98 percent efficient in our application, and you know, by reclaim and all these other things. and You know, real world, maybe in a lab. Yeah, but not real. world, right. And not all the associated problems that come with that as you continue to, you know, you know, the one thing. <laughs> And I do this a lot with new customers, you know, because, oh, we want reclaim, we want reclaim, you know, I said, that, that's great if you're a high volume, but the systems we're putting in are not high volume, where you're going to see a true benefit to reclaim. And then you start to explain to them, well, you know, technically, if you read all the data, you're only supposed to reclaim powder three times before you throw it away. Right. So if I mix mixing reclaim with my virgin powder, how do I know which particles were in there only twice? And how, you know, So how do you yeah. sort that out?
0: Leads so, to a lot of problem solving yeah, and chasing just, tails, right? Yeah. yeah,
1: and and then you you're packing out filters and your efficiency's dropping because the powder doesn't hold as good a charge after it's been sprayed a number of times. And you go on and on and on, and unless you're a real world like like you and everybody else out there is actually powder coating, you don't understand. It all sounds good as a sales pitch, but in reality, it doesn't work that way. You know, eighty percent, eighty five percent, it's doable. But this whole 95 to, you know, come on. <laughs> um, yeah. But again, a lot of that is is just sales and, and just trying to get that marketing edge. But um, yeah, with, with the electric, I don't I don't know, um, you know, because, again, you know, the other technology, UV curing, you know, because, um, again, but you still need a certain amount of temperature to really get it to flow you know, which which they don't really explain. And, and ultraviolet, is it, it's used a lot of energy to power
3: those lamps. So a lot of right. issues.
0: Yeah, and now tell me more about UV because is that, I mean, are they using infrared or UV when, because you do have a site, a, a blog on your website and it does talk about, powder-coated MDF um, and stuff. Are they using UV or infrared on that, on those lines? Uh, and, or can you, oh, you can use both. Okay. Well, you have to use both. Okay. Because because of the moisture level in in wood and stuff like that, right? Well, is that what it is? Um,
1: and I don't know if you had a chance to read the whole blog, but it really talked, you know, because what happens is, you know, about once a year, one of the magazines will, produce an article about powder coating MDF and I get flooded with phone calls from everybody oh I want to powder coat MDF I want to you know and then I have to go through the whole explanation that uh it was a a two-year process for them to be able to do it with the coordination of their powder supplier and their equipment supplier and you know their material supplier and all these different things and and basically um What happens is, first of all, you need to use a higher grade of MDF right off the bat because it's got to have the better resins in it that can take the temperatures,
2: Mm -hmm.
1: you know, and then um, you have to maintain a certain humidity level within the board so that you can attract the powder to it. So you benefit from the electrostatic process. Right. So um, sometimes they actually will build a humidification chamber on the line like in a process Mm -hmm. where they can actually mist or basically sending the product through a cloud and we used to do that quite a bit back in the day we were doing a lot of electrostatic coating liquid of stain on on wood cabinets and things like that where you'd actually run the board through a misting chamber Mm
2: -hmm. just to
1: get some moisture and humidity to attract you know electrostatically so but what they do is then they they preheat the board.
3: A bit so that they get the powder to start gelling right away then they hit it again with infrared after it's been sprayed um
1: to get it to flow and then they hit it with the uv to cure it see and and it's a special powder because it won't cure without the uv right and and again what inherently the problem with that is
3: is if you have any complex parts if it doesn't see the uv it will never cure. Yeah, it's a lot of problems. Yeah. So,
1: you know? you know, and again, if you have a high volume line, if you're a huge cabinet manufacturer and you ran hundreds and hundreds of doors. Uh, yeah, and in fact, on the used market for a while there, when they first came out with powder coating MDF, everybody rushed out and bought systems. Right. And they found that it wasn't, Production stable, and you know, we had three or four of them right off the bat that were offered to us for like pennies on the dollar. That people just wanted to get rid of because they they just get it out of our plant. You know, it was a nice experiment, but you know, uh, but again, they were smaller manufacturers. You big guys, and they had the resources to really do that and do that production control and have people to maintain all those different facets. Yes, it is a viable option, but not for the average small coder.
0: Yeah, I, I agree with you. Um, I did read an article recently of, uh, powder coder out of uh, New Mexico that had just made it a big announcement that they were jumping into that. And I'm like, I, I, you know, I, we did have, uh, someone from, um, IFS come out and do a show with us a couple years ago now. And, um, you know, he kind of walked through the process. Basically, we kind of skimmed through the basic process, but there's just it, it's a lot to think about. It's a lot to get into. I think what is it? The minimum to jump into it is one hundred and fifty thousand or more. Um
1: Oh, that would be on the way, way low end. I would low side,
0: yeah. Well, way, they're scaring yeah. people with the pricing, right? You know, yeah. so like already people are like, "What?" You know, just to get into that. So, um, I, yeah, I. It's not that. I mean, obviously, people are. I don't know of any yet, but if they are coming out, um, I'd love to have them on the show. But we've been kind of watching a couple of the companies that have said that they're getting into this uh, powder coders, custom coders. Uh, so I'd like to have them come on when they kind of get it up and going. Um, uh, it seems like it it could lend itself to, but it could also demand a lot of people for that business, which is on one hand good because you're hiring more employees, you're building, you're growing your business and stuff, and you know there certainly is a. a a serious demand, at least not, maybe not upfront, but in the future to be one of the only coders in the world that could do this and do it successfully. So, I mean, you're talking about a whole industry, but even, um, even when we were, you know, uh, on the powder coating Institute, we were, I was actually joined their subcommittee on that. And even the people that have a stake in the game on that committee. Couldn't even agree about how to market themselves uh, properly, or what, who, what audience were they going to talk to first? Do they yeah. talk to the powder? Do they talk to the cabinet manufacturing people, or do they talk to other people within their industry? So it's kind of a twofold problem because you have to kind of create that demand, and then yet. Uh, also be having coders and applicators able to do it perfectly, right?
1: Yeah, well, uh, see, the, the other problem you get into too is, is you look at the economics. Um, uh, me personally, I, I think they're targeting the wrong
3: market because you? MDF, it's a cheap cabinet.
0: Right, to begin People with, right? Yeah,
3: It's inexpensive.
1: So your margins are going to be very low. So it's right. going to be hard unless you're a very large volume to do that. And that's why it makes it so cost prohibitive. And if I'm buying a high-end cabinet, I'm not buying an MDF board because it's powder coated. <laughs> I'm buying a high-end <laughs> solid wood cabinet that I know if I put a screw in it, it's not going to pull out a crumble.
0: Right. and oh. And the natural woods have their beauty within themselves, right? Like cherry or maple yeah. or... You know, and Over, I, I get the whole maple thing because I used to, you know, refinish furniture and and wood cabinets all the time here locally. And you know, there are some downsides to staining walnut. It's a very hard, it's a common wood, but it's also a very hard wood to stain perfectly and evenly because of the way that it's designed, or you know, the way that it is. Right? It's right. The way you it know, grows, whereas yeah. cherry is a little bit more forgiving um, and stuff. So. You know, it, it's, it, you know, on one hand, it's great. I could see it changing the world uh, in terms of its idea. But at the same time, there's this selling side to it that is just, uh, I'm not sure custom coders or manufacturers in general have the, you know, they have to kind of uh, mow down the forest to get to the customer, right? You know, like, kind of like what you were saying, you know, who who's going to want that?
1: Yeah. If you're, again, I, I just don't see the margins in there large enough yeah, to be successful doing it on a regular basis, unless it's just such a high volume where you can get your part per piece down, you know, to a very small number. Uh, right. Because again, it's MDF board, you know, and, and then right off the bat, you're paying more for that board because you got the better resin you, and, different yeah. things like that, and you have to treat it now. So there's all those other processes. So, you know, where that tipping point is to where you say, well, why don't, aren't you just doing it out of wood instead of
3: MDF? You know, now I could actually see um, a much better application with, with with different woods that were
1: difficult to stain or, you know, like a poplar, which doesn't have a a nice Mm -hmm. appearance in general to where you would paint that. You know, the other issue that, that everybody ignores too, is that, you know, When you powder coat, unless they can have, unless it's a a flexible type powder, you're going to get cracks in the cabinets when you hit it with something because it's going to dent. And we all know, take a piece of, you know, that's something that, for example, even the the manufacturers of T-tops for boats, like right now, the hot thing is everybody's powder coating their T-tops. Yeah. Cause everybody wants it to match the color of their boat or whatever.
0: Right. right. But they're
1: quickly finding, and I've, I've had a number of people that I know in Florida here, they have boats. <laughs> and the first thing they say is I wish I'd never got a powder coated. I should have just stuck with stainless or aluminum and just been done with it because if you dent it, now you got a crack. And now you got this chip. Right. And it's just a nightmare. Right. Yeah. So what happens with, you know, you got this beautiful kitchen, you put in, it's all powder coated MDF. And you hit it with a pan or something like that. And, and, you know, all of a sudden you're in that same situation. It's not going to be easy to repair.
0: It, Yeah, it's true. Um, I, I And also with regards to poplar or using walnuts or some of the harder woods, uh, natural woods is, you know, and, you're dealing with a, an extreme variable in terms of how they were grown. If, if it's an imperfect, you know, maybe it's a drier year, right? you know, it, it. there are so many variables within um, the wood itself, right. Because it's yeah. a natural product that, you know, I don't see how you could control that. Yeah. Um, well, it's hard enough to control with just paint staining, right. You know, with by hand or yeah. with a spray booth. Yeah.
1: And then throw into that end grain.
0: Yeah, exactly. Yeah.
1: You know, you got to um, pick the MDF board and that that cut is not smooth on the ends. Yeah, true. So now that's a whole nother process. And usually right. what they're doing is they're using an adhesion glue. promoter different things like right. that, trying to fill it, you know, yeah. almost like a primer, you know, yes. or they're trying to load up those edges enough where it'll flow out and cover it.
0: Or so, they're gluing an end to it. So yeah, there's an, yeah, there's glues involved and stuff like that. Yeah, I, whew, you know, it's a big problem to solve and with many, many facets and, and angles and sides and stuff that, you know, on the other hand, you know, if they could successfully answer all those questions, you know, it's a game changer and certainly would fit in with, sure. you know, being more efficient and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Um, well, interesting talk today. I, uh, I hope we've myth busted some of your questions. I know Ross is. I wrote down lots of notes. I can't wait to share it with him because a lot of what he's, um, always pondered, you know, uh, has been answered today by you, Rich.
1: Oh, I appreciate that. But you know, that's really part of the bulk of the calls I get are from people that are new to powder coating or, or you know, yeah. they're just trying to get into it. So a lot of time it. it's. The first conversation is just more of an education about what you're trying to do and why, and yeah. trying to understand. It's it's not that difficult. It's we're we're not building rockets here, <laughs> you know. But there are certain things you have to inherently be aware of, and that could trip you up, you know.
2: Yeah.
1: But I find that you know I tell most of my customers I say you know after you've had whatever piece of equipment I sell you for six months, you're going to know more about it than I ever will because you're using it every day. So that's the way I approach. It's just kind of a tool you know, and then you can make it do whatever you want, really. And we, I've, I've been in some places that they do a phenomenal job. And then I've been in other places that, well, let's just say not so much.
0: (laughs) It's true. Um, I, you know, I think that it it, there is such a variety in terms of quality output, you know, that I've seen just in like some of the products that I have, you know, I bought a, a display wall and, um, the components, the hanging parts, you know, they're all powder coated and stuff. So I was kind of inspecting that and and stuff. I mean, for what you're getting, it's pretty good, you know, but I noticed it's not the kind of high quality that you would want out of like, you know, someone that's doing a rim or some kind of automotive part. It's certainly different, right? You know, so you know, it's a big, big world out there in terms of powder coating and, uh, what you can get or who you work with right to, you know, to get that. So
1: well, I, I'll tell you after being in so many places, the, the first thing I walk in is I, whether it's clean or not,
3: Yeah, uh, a lot I mean, that
1: I, I know right off the bat what I'm within 30 seconds, yeah. I can tell you know <laughs> what they're producing and, and the type of expectation they have in their customer's app. And, and I will, you know, if you want a good product, you got to keep the
3: place clean.
2: Yeah. You know,
3: it's we, true. I had one customer that uh, he only had eight customers and each one was set up
1: for coding on a different day or a different time. And the parts had to be there the week before and he would coat them and turn them around. And then Friday, he only worked half a day on Friday. They shut the system down and cleaned everything top to bottom. So that Monday when they came in, they were ready to fire it up. And very successful. Wow! he never had to negotiate price because he'd tell them, you know, he'd say, well, if you want to try somewhere else, that's fine. I'll keep the slot open for you for 30 days. After that, (laughs) I am selling it with somebody else. And in 30 plus years, he only lost two customers. Wow. And they both wanted to get back to him. You know,
0: and there was somebody else that filled the slot.
1: And he said, he said, you know, so was it worth the five cents you saved on the part? You know, right. But, uh, but he was comfortable with what he was doing and confident. Yeah. And uh, he did a wonderful job and, and had a nice business with very little headaches. <laughs> Not scrambling <laughs> around. God,
0: if I only had to bill eight people, that, that'd be nice. Well,
1: right? he said the biggest thing was he, he, he trained them all that. Don't drop stuff on me at the last minute and say you have to have it tomorrow. Uh, in, in 30 plus years, he said he only turned the system on twice on a weekend. And because all his customers knew if, if he had to turn it on because they needed something, it was three times the price, no negotiation. Oh, wow. You know, but there's again, a lesson
0: he, in that. Yeah, yeah. I wish I could charge that, you know. Yeah.
1: You know, <laughs> But but he said what happened was they didn't ask him because they already knew the answer. And somehow, they were able to get the parts to them on time, and somehow you know because this big thing was your lack of organization isn't my problem true and and we've we're in a society now where and we all because we want to have good customer service we want mm-hmm. to our customers, so we agree to that so so we actually train them to abuse us is the way I put it
0: <laughs> we do i I think that's a really good point um oops. Where's my phone? Hold on. It's probably, oh, it's Tiger Drylac. Oh, okay. <laughs> I wonder what that's about. It's okay. He can leave a message. Um, yeah. You know, I think that, uh, you know, you, you kind of, we're kind of at that point where it's like, we're trying to train up our customers, you know, Uh to, you know, especially the one I had this yesterday, Uh, somebody wanted a quote over the email with no pictures. I know the piece is 10 years old and it was already previously powder coated. And I'm like, you know what, I'd love to help you. But, uh, you know, he didn't know it was like patio furniture. So, you know, there's some stuff that I need to understand first. You can't. I can't just give you a quote over the phone. As confident as I am about quoting, um, there's some, you know. And I'm like, well, why don't you call somebody else, right? (laughs) You know. And I haven't heard back from the guy, but you know, it's really just uh, understanding your business as much as you can, right? Or your customers, right? Um, One final thing. I mean, we didn't touch on used versus new. Um, but I'm thinking about it now. Mm -hmm. Uh, what are, what are some, I mean, is there anything to know about new versus used and why you would want to buy new or, or used? Right. Well,
1: you know, right now there is very little, if any good quality used equipment. Um, I have, Couple batch ovens, I think, that are available right now, and a couple other small pieces. And and I network
3: with one or two other used equipment dealers. Uh, there's quite a few of them that I don't work with for a number of reasons. Um, uh,
1: but the ones I work with, we consider we only even consider equipment that's A and B quality. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't want the thing that the company was going under for the last three years and they didn't maintain it, or right. you open a control panel and there's wires jumped all over the place.
3: Um, you know if it's a mild steel washer we don't even consider if it's more than a couple of years old you know there's a lot of things like that um
1: the the biggest issue because we get calls all the time and persons say oh i have this system and i want to modify it or you know i found the system but it's too small for us but we want to we want to change it yeah and and right away it's like okay they want to add a foot to the height and and whatever else and you say well now you're adding all those additional nozzles to the washer. The pumps probably don't have the capacity because they weren't designed to handle the extra load. Uh, your oven was, you know, so it just exponentially. And then you figure you labor to modify all
3: that. And you quickly approach the cost of new for a system that's less efficient that you're trying to make
1: fit your application. Right. Now, I mean, we do come a, across where it's a really nice fit. Almost identical to what the guy needed, and it's 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 more of a conveyor rerouting change to make it fit in his the area he has allocated, mm-hmm. as opposed to modifying the whole thing. Or there have been a number of times where we find a system that the washer is really nice, and then we'll we'll actually rebuild the entire. Uh, we'll just use the oven panels because they're all interlocked, and we'll just pick mm-hmm. it like it's a big puzzle. And if I have to add a couple panels, I will and piece it together that way. So there are some advantages, but that actually is what drove me to to, um, slide out of manufacturing myself and start working with uh, outsourcing a lot of the fabrication. Because typically with our value line series, as we call it, um, we can do it for 20 to 30 percent less than the average cost for a new system right now which puts you only slightly more than what a used system would be. Mm -hmm. So, so for a little bit more money, you can have a brand new system with full warranties and everything else. Cause that's the other thing with the used system. And we were a little bit different because when we, when we would put the used system in uh, we would start it up and we'd make sure we got product off the line. Now, once I did that, then it was on the customer, but in the course of starting it up or something like that, if I had to replace a pump, that was on me. If I had to rebuild a heater house, that was on me, because I sold the customer a working system.
2: Mm-hmm. Where there
1: are some houses out there that, well, this is what you bought. We just took it from here to here and put it back in. we you know, if this needs fixed, it's on you. Um, so th- th- there, there's some pitfalls. You know, the one thing I tell everybody that's looking at used
3: equipment is jump in a plane. Go look at the equipment so you know what you're getting. And the other thing is, if you're doing it, make sure whoever takes it out is the one putting it back in.
1: Because you'll take it out a lot differently if you know you
2: (laughs) put it back together.
0: You know, and what does that say about the industry, too? I mean, does that mean that there's a lot of demand for equipment um, that that we're growing? in an industry?
2: No, um,
3: it's really hard to say. Um, There's just, because there hasn't been a lot of business expansion, um, you know, there's just not a a
1: high volume of equipment out there.
2: Mm -hmm. And
1: when you figure an average life of you know, 20 to 25 years before it's really worn out. Right. Um, you you know, when you haven't had that business expansion for so many years and there's not a lot of companies going out of business or consolidating or different things like that, but where do you get the used equipment from, Mm
2: -hmm.
1: you know, and what's left is what has been worn out and the company either closed or they retired it. For example, I had one customer that he had a system that was working and, uh, he called me about a new system and it was going to be about uh, a little over $500,000. And uh, we talked for a while. And then about two weeks later, I follow up with him and he, he says, Rich, he said, you know, I really love to do it because I know it would improve our efficiency a bit. He said, but I have a hard time spending $500,000. Um, when I'm going to be retiring in two years and my kids don't want the business. So I'm going to sell it. He says, I'm not going to recoup all that. He said, I'm better off taking that half a million dollars to put in my retirement account. And I'm like, I would do the exact same thing. you know. I hated to say it, but I had to be honest. Right. I mean, if I was in that position, that money's going in my account. Right. Yeah. So then when we came up with our value line series, I called him back and this is about a year later. And I asked him, I said, you know, if I could have done the system for, you know, around 350, would you have done it? And he paused and he said, yeah, I would have done it. He said, because I ended up putting over a hundred grand into my existing system just to keep it going for the next couple of years until I could sell the company. He said, so if I take that minus the additional, he said, now I would have had a newer system, which would have been considered more of an asset. Right. Rather than just, you know, he said now the, the economics of it justified.
0: Yeah. Because the selling price would have, wouldn't, couldn't, could, he couldn't have gotten more, you know? Yeah. Yeah.
1: You know, so there's a lot of nuances to it all. And there is no right or wrong answer. Um, You know, some people. Yeah, I think a lot lot of manufacturers
0: are just hanging on to stuff, right? They're just not, they're not, you know, there's there's timeliness, right? Where they, you know, they've worn out their system and they have to do it. Uh, But then those used, that used equipment may not even be worth it. They just throw it out or whatever. You know, people are just kind of running it to the end. Um, yeah.
1: and because it's so old, a lot of, like, uh, we have one customer that we're waiting for them to approve it. Um, it's a system that's about 20 years old. The problem is they can't get the replacement parts for it because everything's newer, you know, and they look at the yeah. cost, try and modify it to accept the new style burner or this or that. And it just doesn't justify yeah. it so yeah then they start calculating and downtime and different things like that because they don't have what they need and time they spent scurrying on the internet trying to scrape up something that'll fit um you know it's just the economics overall of it and that's what drives some of that yeah. that doesn't example, sound fun at like, all like even with batch systems um i could probably sell every 8 that i could get my hands on because i get calls every week for people looking for a used batch batch oven but the problem is, uh, for most small coders and custom coders, why would they ever get rid of that batch system? Even if they automate, I, I'm I'm putting an overhead line. I'm keeping that batch because if I get that call at the last minute, I can spray something and throw it in that oven and get it out. I can turn around an hour if I have to. But if I put it on the line, it's going to be a couple-hour process. i got to go in and set up all my guns or i got to play around with it. So that's why you don't see a lot of good used batch equipment on the market mm-hmm. because why would you get rid of it if you have the space for it
0: yeah if anything we're just going to keep adding you know we have two ovens right now a large one and a small one and we've always wanted a medium sized one because there's always we we probably wouldn't even use the medium one that often um unless we had a bunch of small stuff that you know would be easier simply done in a medium sized oven um but we're turning around so fast that that i don't see that necessarily happening but with the medium size i can see where that would help our contractor market a little bit you know uh small contractors because they always have some some long part that's too too small for the big oven uh, for the small oven and too large for the big oven and and then we have to kind of i feel like we have to kind of price gouge them a little bit just because we got to turn that big oven on you know Um,
1: especially where you're at because you are more sensitive to the utility portion of that yeah Right. Because, you know, I always jokingly tell, you know, most, well, I'm, I'm, I don't know if I should get an 8, a 10 or 8, a 15. And I always tell them I've never in 40 years had a customer tell me his oven's too big. Because <laughs> As soon as he puts it in somebody, you know, you put the 10 foot oven <laughs> and somebody comes to you with a 12 foot you know, in fact, You get calls all the time, you know, how can I add three foot to my oven? Oh, I know. You know, and it's like, well, you know, now you start getting the economics and the efficiency of it. And feet loss and on and on
0: and on and it just yeah and we went actually one inch longer than 20 feet just because there's always some guy who you know and then we're having to we can actually do 23 feet diagonally if it's a small you know if it's a long linear piece uh and it doesn't uh it's it's got a thick wall enough to where it doesn't bend too far you know um it just, yeah, there's always somebody, but we have, you know, we're waiting for that one job to say, well, it's 25 foot sections. Okay, we can build out as an addition to that and make it work or a 30, you know, maybe 20, 30 feet as well. Uh, we're waiting for that one job to make it worth our while, right? Um, uh, but until that happens, it's 20, it's pretty much 20 feet.
1: Yeah. Which handles the bulk of the product. I mean, yeah. that, that is a nice size um, you, you know, I'll get calls. Uh, I just had one not too long ago from a guy and he says, well, I'm in a car club and you know, we want to powder coat our car frames and you know, I'm looking at buying a system. And I asked him, well, is that his business? Said, no, we're in his car club. And I says, okay, <laughs> you know, I told him, I said, just go out, I, I said, go out and spend the 500 bucks and, and, you know, get your frame coated and be done with it. <laughs> no, no, no. You know, he, you know, and I told him, I said, look, if you really want to buy it, I'll sell it to you. I said, but I don't want you calling me in six months because your wife's divorcing you because you mortgaged the house to buy this powder coat system. No no product going through it, you know? So that's the other thing I always try and educate customer on too is because I, and this happens quite often. I have fabricators that will call me and they'll say, you know, I think I have enough product. I can probably fill the line for like uh, three days a week. And then I'm figuring I can do other coating the other two. and and I asked him, so well, where, where are you going to get this other coating from? He said, well, you know, there's some other fab shops that, you know, I think I could do coating for. And and I'll just ask him a question. I said, well, you're a fab shop too, right? And he said, yeah. And I said, well, why do you think somebody would send their parts to get, have you code them so that they could send them to their customer? Now you could fab and do it everything in one and cut your price.
0: Exactly.
1: You know, I said, so if you can't afford to do it on what you're currently running. Right. You know, as as if, if it's a separate part of your business, it's different if all you are is a custom coder and that's your business, you know. But for some of these other people looking to to add that equipment, you know, if, if you can't afford it or the economics don't justify it on your own, then typically it's not a good solution.
0: Have you found if it's easier for custom coders to get into fabbing or is it? Or do you feel like it's fabrics that get into powder coating or is it just half, half?
1: No, if, if you're a coder, you're a coder. I, I find nobody wants to go in the fabrication portion of it. And, and it's actually hard to find that, that good labor anymore. Yeah. So typically it's the fabricator looking to powder coat and usually nine out of 10 times it's because they're not getting the quality or they're not getting the turnaround that they expect. Mm-hmm. Um, I had one that called and he says, you know, I send out a hundred parts and I get 80 back. And now I can't fill my order. So he said, how do you lose 20% of what I sent you? You have no clue where it's at, you know, or he's got to inspect them or, or all these other things. So uh, oftentimes if I hear
3: somebody that's having difficulty because they're uh, from a pricing standpoint, Again,
1: problems is usually not the problem because everybody's looking for the coder that they can rely on that they can send their parts to and they know they're gonna get the turnaround that you tell them and and they can count on that because that affects their whole business. If they don't have parts, they they can't assemble their things or they can't ship them out or whatever. So that's usually what drives it. Most of the guys I talk to, they don't want to get into it unless they're spending. You get the oddball that you know he's spending fifty grand a month in outsourcing powder coating. is like, "Yeah, I think we should probably bring it in right. House. Yeah, but for the bulk of them, it's because they don't have a choice, right? So, right. and like I said, all i all I know is the the guys that I work with that do quality work, they've got all the work they can handle, and pricing typically isn't an issue,
0: yeah. Well, this has been so fascinating. You know so much about the industry more than I ever thought. And I certainly appreciate you coming on. And, you know, I know how valuable your time is. You you literally are working, <laughs> as you say, uh, you know, 16 hours a day, seven days a week. Um, I believe it.
1: <laughs> well, no different than any other small business person out there, right? I mean, you you put in the same hours, right? Yeah. And probably most with this podcast
0: absolutely <laughs> <laughs> certainly a labor of love for sure and i love it i love it more than anything else i do i i absolutely love the uh building of community that we're getting and the growth uh, you know and the response and they're just eating up the content you know um and it's 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 time for the industry to kind of divulge uh, to disperse information, um, because it's so hard to get, uh, you know, the forums are gone. Um, a lot of the stuff that we had in the early two thousands is not no longer available. Even just this Mr. Heater, the, you know, uh, calculator, uh, which I do want to talk to you after the show about maybe we could build something online for it. I think it would definitely help the business, you know, the industry, uh, but uh, thank you again um, for coming on and spending some time with us today. Uh, I'm sure you'll be back. Maybe we'll talk in the future about other stuff that didn't get covered today about oh, ovens.
1: We'll squeeze out time however we can. So, yeah, but no, I appreciate you asking me on. It's a pleasure. And, you know, anybody that has questions, I'm always
0: available you know oh thank you yeah so, now uh, you're not on social media but you can be reached on your website which I'll sh- share one more time yeah,
1: there or uh, you know and and our phones there or you can contact me um quite honestly i don't have time for social media
2: <laughs> I, I,
0: hear, I hear you <laughs> I, I, I i would say it there. would be hard to show people like you know people want to see the glitz and the glam on instagram and stuff like that where how do you do that out of an oven you know
1: yeah i you know i, I guess the way I describe it and again, because we're not just ovens, but you're talking powder booths and yeah sort of systems. And then you know you add robotics into it uh for and and a lot of specialized chain, you know, we do chain on edge systems, which hardly anybody is even familiar with.
0: Yeah, what is that? I've never even heard of that.
1: Um picture a um how how would you powder coat an oil filter, for example? Oh. Okay. Okay. So you support it on a spindle. And you can index it in front of the gun and you can rotate it, spray it. And then you rotate it through the oven. There's a lot of different things you can do with that. Or, um, a system we put in years ago, it was a liquid application, but, uh, Calphalon cookware, the, the gourmet cookware, we put the system in that uh, for spraying the nonstick coating on the interior of the pants,
2: mm-hmm. you
1: know, mm-hmm. and that was all done robotically, or I could show you one of the products. Uh,
3: this was actually a, a piston uh, application wow. that was done. You can see the spindle,
2: mm-hmm.
1: but uh, we were washing it. And this is a Molly lubricant
3: that is actually silkscreened onto the piston and then baked to wow. reduce wear in the cylinder wall. So it
1: lends itself very well to Chan and Edge because we can rotate it. But this one, we actually had it indexing in so that the robot could grab it in the same position every time and load it into the screening machine so there's a lot of flexibility so we get into a lot of uh, i call it the uh the the projects that nobody else really wants (laughs) well what is because there's there's a lot more uh engineering involved and the big companies the big systems houses they're not set up to cater to that right and and if they do a project like that it's going to be so expensive that it makes it very difficult unless you are the automotive company or the other ones that have endless resources, but that's not real work for most of us. You know, yeah, we have budgets and different things like that. So a lot of times we get into that where we're handling some of the oddball stuff. Um, yeah, and a lot of times I'll have people to call, uh, just to pick my brain, so to speak, and I'll direct them to the right. Yeah. You know, put them in the right direction. Hey, here's who you want to talk to, or you no, know, you don't want to do it that way. Um, uh, you know, I joke around. We've we've coded quote, everything from the on off button on your car radio to fifteen hundred pound tractor wheels and anything in between. So if you kind of picture that envelope, you know, it's a,
3: quite a vast. Well, you
0: seem to have a sweet spot on a a, a, a commercial uh, customer that you know y- you can help versus some of the larger companies out there that only deal with like really huge systems and stuff that are just so expensive.
1: And the other thing is, um, I I do all the design work. So you're not talking to the sales guy. Right. Um, so generally I can give the answer right away or I can direct you to somebody that can, instead of, you know, especially now, because, and I'm sure you're experiencing this, that talent of people with knowledge is gone there, there's no younger, you know, you get some hungry young people coming up in the business and they can have all that they want because there's just not that as these guys are retiring, there's nobody that really replaces them with
0: No, It's a, it's a big issue. Um, I know that I've, I've read magazine articles on that and stuff and that it's, yeah, it's not a, not a good thing for, for our industry. Um, at the same time, like when it comes to like, the powder suppliers too. It's like they've got this—they've got this low-level sales side to them, which is the people that you have to interact, ordering powder, that don't or can't answer any kind of technical questions. And they—and then they've got these super knowledgeable guys that you can't access uh, unless you're big enough, or you complain enough, or you—you know—and um, stuff. It's just a little frustrating. to to talk to and i'm talking about the larger uh companies not you know prismatic powders they usually uh have someone technical there to answer they have a technical line not to say that they're very helpful when you do call them because they're always pointing the finger back at you you did the problem you did it wrong (laughs) it's not our powders whatever but
1: uh which is a good point because you know like when we build our equipment I make the customer, I, I need the specs from your powder supplier. I need specs from your chemical guy. I'm not going to tell you how long it has to bake or what it has to do. They have to dictate that. And then they'll say, well, who do you, who do you recommend for powder? Yeah. And I say, whoever is going to service you the best, <laughs> because it doesn't matter what you take. Axel Noble, uh, yeah. whoever you want, it's the guy that's knocking on your door. Right. going to be the difference because he's going to be there to help you and, yeah. and some guys that are really good and then there's some that they're just looking at numbers and they know you know they read the text sheet on it and that's about it
0: yeah yeah again we're hitting on some stuff that we could definitely talk about in the future for sure we just keep going on <laughs> oh yeah and then you know uh but i i do want to close and say thank you again for coming Great. on um and uh We'll be sure to have you back on when we've got more stuff to talk about. Um, So have a beautiful Florida afternoon. (laughs) It's
1: raining right now. We've got, we're we're in our summer pattern. It rains every day for like 20 minutes, just enough to mess up the car that you just (laughs) washed.
0: It did rain this morning. But yeah. I thought it was going to be, but it's clearing up now. But we're su- it's surprisingly rainy for September around here. Uh, but anyways, all right, Actually, everybody. Yes, my favorite
1: month there is May, so.
0: Oh, yeah, that's a good month to come yeah. for sure. All right, everybody. All right. Aloha. Appreciate
3: it.
2: Thank See you all. Ya.
0: Bye. Bye.